This message comes from NPR sponsor, Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath Learning Format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. From WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Terry Gross with Fresh Air Weekend. Today, Werner Herzog. He goes to extremes to make films about extreme personalities, predicaments, and places. He's made movies in the Amazon jungle, a documentary about a man who lived with grizzly bears until he was eaten by one. He's described two of his lead actors as madmen. His new memoir is called Every Man for Himself and God Against All. Also, we'll hear from actor Greta Lee in her new film, Past Lives. She plays a Korean-American playwright living in New York City, caught between the present and her past, her husband and her childhood sweetheart, who's visiting from Seoul. Lee is known for her performances in the series Russian Doll, Girls, and The Morning Show. Later, Ken Tucker reviews the Rolling Stones' new album. Come on! That's coming up on Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from NPR sponsor Stearns & Foster. To Stearns & Foster, your comfort is their everything. So they've made a mattress that's irresistible inside and out. Every Stearns & Foster mattress is handcrafted. Every stitch, every layer uses the finest materials, like indulgent memory foam and ultra-conforming IntelliCoils for the coziness you want with the support you need. Timeless quality for your most comfortable sleep. Stearns & Foster, what comfort should be. More at StearnsAndFoster.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor BritBox. Discover powerful new series like Three Little Birds and BAFTA-winning drama Time, starring Bella Ramsey, Tamara Lawrence, and Jodie Whittaker. Stream the best of British TV only on BritBox. Start a free trial at BritBox.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Squarespace. Measure your end-to-end online performance with powerful website and seller analytics. Get insights on top traffic sources, understand how your reach is growing, and more. Use code NPR to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. On Wildcard, the new podcast from NPR, you'll hear people like comedian Jenny Slate reflect on their lives. What is something you think about very differently today than you did 10 years ago? Dressing. Like, not salad dressing. I've always loved it and I'll never stop. <laughs> dressing my body. That's all part of the new game show, Wildcard, only from NPR. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Terry Gross. My guest, Werner Herzog, is a writer and director who makes films about extremes, extreme personalities, predicaments, and places. He's made two films in the Amazon jungle, a Gary, The Wrath of God, about a mad conquistador in the 16th century, and Fitzcarraldo, about a European opera lover in Peru, obsessed with bringing opera to the Amazon, but in order to do it, he needs to get a steamship over a mountain to get to the river. The actor who starred as a madman in both films was Klaus Kinski, who Herzog describes as a madman. Kinski also starred in Herzog's version of Nosferatu. Herzog's documentary Grizzly Man is about a man who lived in Alaska among grizzly bears, thinking he was protecting them, until one ate him and his girlfriend. The list of films about and shot in extreme circumstances is a lot longer. Herzog grew up in extreme circumstances. He was born in Munich during World War II. After Allied bombs were dropped, decimating nearby homes, his mother found him in his crib covered with shattered glass and debris. He was uninjured, but his mother took him and his brother to an extremely remote part of Bavaria in the mountains, where they lived a life of poverty. Over the years, he survived many injuries sustained while ski jumping and while making films. Some members of his casts and crews have suffered illness and injury, too. Even people who don't know Herzog's films know him for his sinister portrayals in Jack Reacher, The Mandalorian, and The Simpsons. Werner Herzog now lives in L.A. and Munich. He's written a new memoir called Every Man for Himself and God Against All, which is also the subtitle of his film, The Enigma of Kasper Hauser. Werner Herzog, welcome back to Fresh Air. Uh, Thank you for having me again. Oh, it is always my pleasure. Do you know why you're attracted to extremes in your life and in your films? 
I don't see it that much as extremes. You see, when you move a ship over a mountain, it is doable. And I knew it was doable, although quite hard. But um, I think it is, a, it is such a big metaphor, like um, in literature you have it, uh, for example, the white whale, uh, Moby Dick, in the hunt for it, or Don Quixote attacking the windmills with his lance. So there are big metaphors, a big vision out there, and then it doesn't matter if it's becoming difficult or not. And, of course... Um, I disagree a little bit about uh, what you said about risking things. Yes, I have risked personally things. I test the problems and the obstacles and the dangers. But in 80 or so films, not a single actor was ever injured, not one. So it's my proof that I must be circumspect, that I must be careful. Uh, of course, sometimes crew members were hurt, uh, but uh, they would volunteer, even push me, for example, let's go through the rapids with a ship, and it's a big one, I mean 320 tons, and if it crashes into the rocks, it has uh, a momentum and a kinetic energy that's enormous. And, and of course, uh, almost everyone who was on board for filming, and they pushed me, let's go on board and let's film this. Um, almost everyone was, was injured. Uh, but uh, that does happen, and it's a risk that we, uh, that we knew and we accepted it. But my question still stands. Why do you think you're attracted to making films that put you in risky situations and that put you in extreme situations. It's one thing to have in the film a metaphor like dragging a ship over a mountain, but it's another thing to actually have to do it in your film. <laughs> you know, at, at that point, it's not a metaphor. At that point, it's something your crew has to do. I hear you, yes. But um, I'm not searching for finding my boundaries or some. The extreme mountain climbers do that. That's not my thing. I, I know my boundaries and I accept them and I take no as an answer, for example. And I'm a professional person, I'm a filmmaker, and I want to come back with a film and I want to come back alive because I want to edit the film and I want to show it to audiences. So, for example, at the edge of a volcano, yes, uh, there were certain dangers and there was an eruption and glowing uh, uh, slabs or blobs of, of lava came down on us, raining down, and some of them very large. I mean, the size of a, the size of a car, the size even of a truck. So you better flee quickly. You get out of it. Uh, but I'm not searching the dangers. Uh, the the nature of my storytelling sometimes requires to go into extreme situations. Yes, but I think um, to look deep into our human nature, to look deep into the darkest recesses of our soul or the hidden things deep in our soul, you have to put uh, human beings uh, at some sort of an edge. You grew up in extreme circumstances during World War II in Munich and then in remote part of Bavaria in the mountains where you were poor. Um, and there was one time where your mother, when you were living in Bavaria during the war, took you and your brother up a slope to get a better view of Rosenheim, a city in Bavaria that had been bombed and was on fire. And you describe it as a vast inferno tracing the terrible pulse of the end of the world on the night sky. I knew that outside of our tight valley, there was a whole world that was dangerous and spectral. Not that I was afraid of it. I was curious to know it. A lot of people would have been afraid of it. Why were you more curious to know it? Well, I was too young. Uh, you see, number one, when my mother fled Munich, I was only two weeks old, 14 days old, when there was carpet bombing on Munich. Of course, there's no memory, anything. The childhood was very, very closed and very beautiful, but when I was two and a half, and it's my very first memory, my mother uh, wakes us up abruptly in the middle of the night. It must have been April uh, 1945. And she says, you have to see it, boys, wraps us in blankets, rushes up on a slope, and at the end of the valley, 
the entire sky was red and orange, but not flickering because it, Rosenheim is 40 miles away. So the entire sky is pulsing slowly red and orange. And uh, that somehow is embedded in my memory forever. And of course, I knew all of a sudden there's something out there. There's a world out there. There's war out there. There's a conflagration out there. And I became curious. Uh, and it's strange because my two brothers who grew up with me did not move out and were that uh, curious. They were very successful in their professions, but not like me. I was I was uh, one who would move to Antarctica or to the jungle or to the Sahara Desert to, to do my work. So when you were young, you got into a fight with your older brother and you stabbed him in the wrist and the thigh. There was blood all over. And you write that you realized you, you urgently needed some self-discipline. What did you do to acquire that self-discipline? It was from one moment to the next. I knew uh, that uh, something like that uh, uh, cannot happen again. And uh, that's how a character is being formed, defeats, catastrophes that I created. Um, and, of course, uh, that shaped my character. And from one moment to the next, I knew you have to control uh, what what is wild in you. You have to be disciplined. And until today, uh, 90% of what you see when you meet me is discipline. People think, yeah, I'm the wild guy out there. And so, no, it's, I'm, I'm a disciplined professional. And... Uh, at that time, family, of course, was important because we grew up with our mother who raised us. We were three brothers and one mother. We lived in one single room in a sort of um, a pension, we called it. It's a boarding boarding house. And, um, and of course, we had clashes like brothers would have. And until today, it's mysterious to uh, to foreigners. Uh, not long ago, a few years ago, I visited my older brother in Spain, where he had built himself a big, a big house and he had a wonderful sailing boat. And we were at a fish restaurant and he, I studied the menu and he put his arm around my shoulder. And all of a sudden, I, I feel some stinging thing in my back and I smell smoke. And I realize he has set my shirt on fire with his cigarette lighter. <laughs> and, and we laughed so hard and everybody around on the table was appalled. But sometimes that's how brothers sometimes function. And I love him dearly and, and we do mischievous things to each other. It, it does happen and it's not that serious. You see, somebody gave me his T-shirt and we, we cooled my back with a, a few glasses of Prosecco. And that was that. That strikes me as slightly less than hilarious and kind of dangerous. <laughs> it, no, it was hilarious. I mean, come on, uh, a shirt doesn't really burn. I mean, it, uh, it glows and glimmers a little bit. But uh, that was his joke. You know, you talk about wanting to see the dark recesses of the soul, but you also write when it comes to your soul that you'd rather die than go to an analyst because it's your view that something fundamentally wrong happens there. And you, you say it's a mistake to light up your soul, shadows and darkness and all. Why do you not want to light up your own soul but want to explore the dark recesses of other people's souls? Well, that's my profession, uh, that's my profession as a poet. And you look deep into who we are and you describe it. But um, <clears throat> you shouldn't make the mistake to believe that memoirs are confessional. I'm not into that business and I never liked too deep introspection. There's enough in, in my memoirs. There's enough introspection. There's no doubt it's in there, but to a certain limit. And uh, I do not want to step beyond uh, uh, a, a certain threshold. Uh, it It is not healthy if you circle too much around your own navel. And it is not uh, good to uh, 
um, recall all the traumata of your childhood. It's good to forget them. It's good to bury them. Not in all cases, but in most cases. So and, uh, psychoanalysis uh, is doing that. I do not deny that it is that it is good and necessary in a very few cases. Yes, I admit it, but it's not my thing. And I keep telling men, so you see, rather rather dead than going to a psychiatrist, but at the same time, uh, rather dead than ever wearing a toupee. So, <laughs> <laughs> you see, my hair is thinning, <laughs> and I just accept it as it is. So nothing, rather dead, yeah. It's nice to know you have your values straight. And women women would immediately, would immediately agree with me. You can't, you cannot live with a man who starts to <laughs> to wear a toupee and thinks he, 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 is, he is handsome now and rejuvenated. Are you afraid of what you'd see if you shone a light on your soul? Uh, no, no. I, I know who I am and I know where I come from. And I know where I'm heading to, uh, toward. Um, no, no fear and, and no regrets. Sure, I made massive mistakes and I'm uh, in a way a result of my own defeats. So be it. They formed me. They made me... Um, they made me uh, thinking uh, beyond what I normally thought before. My guest is filmmaker Werner Herzog. His new memoir is called Every Man for Himself and God Against All. We'll hear more of our conversation after a break. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. Support for this podcast comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's Fresh Air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation. Let's get back to my interview with writer and filmmaker Werner Herzog. He makes movies about extremes, extreme personalities, situations, and places. His films, The Gear of the Wrath of God and Fitzcarraldo, were both set and filmed in the Amazon jungle. Rescue Dawn is about an American fighter pilot who was shot down over Laos and managed to survive. His documentaries include Encounters at the End of the World, Shot in Antarctica, and Grizzly Man, about a man who lives among grizzly bears in Alaska, thinking he's protecting them until he's killed and eaten by a grizzly. You grew up well, your very early years were during World War II, and then you grew up in the aftermath. Your father was a Nazi, and he fought in the war, but he was mostly like in the supply room, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And your mother was briefly a National Socialist. Did they talk with you ever about Nazism? Um, we didn't talk that much. My mother, it was obvious, she was very early on uh, embarrassed about uh, being having been misguided and... Uh, uh, and she practically, of course, she had to to raise all alone three children. There was no money. My father never paid anything to support us, and um, she uh, she became a completely different person. Um, and and of course, it was always lingering out there. And of course, I was fascinated by uh, what happened to Germany. How. Is it possible that within a few years such a cultured nation lapses into, transforms into a world of barbarism? Well, even your father. Your father was from an academic family. I mean, he was from a very educated yeah. family. He was an academic himself. So yes. you must have wondered the same about your father. How could exactly, somebody who was yes. educated from a very educated family? Yes, and it happened to many other educated families. There was no one spared. I mean, Germany was um, almost 100% Nazi. The dissidents, yes, they were out there, but they ended up in, in concentration camps very quickly. You know, your mother took you to Bavaria in the mountains to escape the bombing, but in retrospect, she also escaped the Nazis. She escaped her own country, I mean, her own people. Um, in a way, yes, but of course, in this village there were also Nazis. And, oh, and sure, I, I hadn't thought of that. Did yes, you know there that? there were also Nazis. I, well, much later, it took some time, I thought. I didn't even know what Germany was. 
it was the valley where, where we grew up, in this remote place, in the waterfall, in the gorge behind the house. That was our world. And of course, the daily struggle. We had no running water. You had to go to the well with a bucket. We didn't have any running water in the house, so uh, my my shower was the ice-cold water of the waterfall deep in the gorge. And... Uh, and hardly any electricity. I didn't know of the existence of cinema until I was 11. I think the first time I noticed that there was something like Germany, uh, I must have been seven or eight years old. For me, the world was around me, and that was it. And of course, I started to question, and I started to um, understand how does chaos and barbarism um, invade a, a fairly organized uh, country. And that's why I wanted to go to the chaos of Eastern Congo after its independence, which I never reached and I probably wouldn't have survived it. Your parents had to undergo denazification after the war. Yes. Did they ever tell you what that entailed? Uh, my mother, my father was always outside of my life. I hardly knew him. Your, your father, you hardly knew. Did your mother tell you? Yes, uh, but not very much. It was fairly laconic, and she said, uh, um, look at me, uh, that's me now. And uh, I did a very, very uh, severe mistake in my life, and my character had to readjust. I'm a different person. I think differently now. And... Um, so I, I accepted it. Um, and, for example, she was never a racist, never deep into Nazi ideology at all. How do you think uh, growing up during the war affected you, even though you were at a remove from it in the mountains? Um, in, in the war and, and its aftermath? Uh, it is more the aftermath and um, and the restrictions. Well, for example, I noticed... Uh, that we were hungry. That was the only thing that was really hard, hard to take. Otherwise, that we lived in, in very deep poverty. I didn't notice. It was a normal thing. And everyone around us was was impoverished. And um, so it, it, it was nothing really special. Only much later, I, I understood what poverty meant. But that I had gone through it never affected me. Although you say that, I'm wondering if you're thinking at all about the children in Israel and in Gaza, um, like children in Israel were kidnapped, there's been missile attacks, children in Gaza have getting bombed, many children have been killed. I'm, I'm wondering if you're thinking about that a lot now. It's Yes, you, you have somebody uh, talking to you who grew up in a war. Uh, I, we were bombed out. There were... There was a foot of glass shard and bricks and debris on my cradle when I was uh, 14 days old. So um, I, I, and then of course I grew up in in post in a post-war time, uh, starvation, um, uh, poverty, and since I had this experience, for me it's obvious uh, that there shouldn't be any war. I'm against any war at all. And, and of course, it is terrible what we are witnessing now. It is terrible. It is terrible. And it shouldn't be. And I hope it will come to a, to a, to a quick end. But um, what, can I, what can I do? I, I cannot fight uh, as a volunteer in this war. Well, would you if you could? It sounds like you're against war and wouldn't want to participate in one. You know, where I would participate if in Germany all of a sudden neo-Nazis um, started a rebellion, an armed rebellion, a coup d'etat. You would know who would be first one to rush back and pick up a weapon. It would be me. I would fight. Because? Because uh, something like uh, times of the barbarism of the Nazis must not repeat itself. You see, as long as there is breath in me, I would fight. I understand that. Um. And, of course, 
having caused, having created the Holocaust, Germany has uh, specific attention to Israel. There's no doubt, uh, but we also now, uh, since it will it will be terrible what's coming, we also have to look after after all the casualties on on both sides. Thank you so much for coming back to our show. I really appreciate it, and I really enjoyed our conversation. Oh, so did I. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Werner Herzog's new memoir is called Every Man for Himself and God Against All. How's this for a segue? Mick Jagger was initially supposed to be in Herzog's film Fitzcarraldo. Jagger is 80 years old now. Keith Richards turns 80 in December. And the Rolling Stones have just released their first collection of new songs in 18 years. The album is called Hackney Diamonds, and it features guest appearances by Lady Gaga, Stevie Wonder, Paul McCartney, and others. Rock critic Ken Tucker says, The album's surprisingly lively, with at least one song that can stand among their very best. In recent years, the Rolling Stones as a band have existed as a brand or rubber stamp, as when a TV ad or a movie soundtrack plugs in a few bars of Gimme Shelter or Sympathy for the Devil as a quick, too easy way to signal danger or decadence or doom. With the death of drummer Charlie Watts two years ago, the notion of a new Stones album meaning very much was, well, it's not something one really thought about. And so the immediate warmth of Hackney Diamonds comes as a pleasant shock. Get Close, one of three songs that Mick Jagger and Keith Richards co-wrote with producer Andrew Watt. Watt has produced Post Malone and Justin Bieber, as well as recent work with veterans like Ozzy Osbourne and Iggy Pop. For this album, he keeps Jagger's vocals on an equal plane with the guitars and drums. Drums provided mostly by Steve Jordan, but there are also two cuts with work that Charlie Watts did before his passing. Andrew Watt's production style here is to be as self-effacing as possible while the songs work up their own grooves. That's driving me too hard. Prior to releasing the album, two singles were issued. The first was Angry, with a clenched Mick Jagger squawking, Don't be angry with me. It was so mediocre, such a self-parody, that it made you want to avoid Hackney Diamonds in advance. But then they released a second song, Sweet Sounds of Heaven. It's everything angry is not, loose and soulful, unafraid to seem sincere and ambitious. Drifting down, 
On Sweet Sounds of Heaven, Stevie Wonder plays keyboards that tumble into the guitars of Keith Richards and Ronnie Wood as Jagger's voice carries the melody. The cut is more than seven minutes long, and Lady Gaga starts singing background vocals about two minutes in. At first, you think the Stones are just using her to remind you of Mary Clayton's indomitable vocals on Gimme Shelter. But then, five minutes in, the music drops away, you think the song's over, and Gaga just starts vamping, making a noise that Jagger picks up on, sending his own voice into a falsetto, and together they bring the song to a new climax. Stones conclude Hackney Diamonds with a cover of Muddy Waters' Rolling Stone, just Mick and Keith on harmonica and acoustic guitar. It's the blues song the band took its name from. It's a very nice farewell, but the album really peaked just before that, with Sweet Sounds of Heaven, about the earthly pleasures of making music, for which the Rolling Stones sound vigorously grateful. Well, I wish I... Was a catfish swimming in a deep blue sea? I would have all you good wicked women fishing after me, fishing after me. Ken Tucker reviewed the Rolling Stones' new album called Hackney Diamonds. Coming up, we'll hear from actor Greta Lee. She stars in the film Past Lives, which our film critic Justin Chang calls an exquisitely thoughtful and moving film and the most affecting love story he's seen in ages. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. Moms know the ups and downs of life. It's what makes them great subjects for books. This is one of the things that fiction can do, right? It can give us a window into the battles that each person is waging or facing, but it doesn't mean that we condone her actions. This week on NPR's Book of the Day podcast, we are discussing books centering mothers. So call your mom, then tune into the Book of the Day podcast from NPR. There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. Our next guest, Greta Lee, stars in the film Past Lives. Our film critic Justin Chang calls it an exquisitely thoughtful and moving film and the most affecting love story he's seen in ages. Although Greta Lee is a member of the Screen Actors Guild, which is currently on strike, Past Lives received an interim agreement from the Guild, which enables Greta Lee to talk about it. She talked about Past Lives with Fresh Air's Anne-Marie Baldonado. Here's Anne-Marie. It might be easy to see Past Lives as a film about a love triangle. In it, Nora, an Asian-American playwright living in New York City with her white American husband, is visited by her childhood sweetheart, who she hasn't physically seen since she emigrated from Seoul over 20 years ago. When that old love, Sung, comes to New York to visit Nora, she finds herself between two men who love different versions of her. So there is that triangle element, but the movie is so much more. It's about loss and regret, 
and how the choices you make and the people around you shape your life. It's also about the lives that you could have lived and how that fork in the road between what is and what might have been has more weight when someone emigrates and moves away from their first home. It's also about reconciling your past self with your current self. The film, which has continued to be called one of the best of the year by critics, is anchored by our guest, Greta Lee. She's best known for her comedic roles in TV shows like Girls, Inside Amy Schumer, and her starring role in Russian Doll with Natasha Lyonne. She currently stars as TV exec Stella Back in the third season of The Morning Show. Her films include The Comedy Sisters with Tina Fey and Amy Poehler and this year's Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Let's start with a scene from past lives. Here, Nora has just returned from her weighty reunion with her old friend, Sung. It's clear that he has come to see her in New York because he still has unresolved feelings for her. She talks about it with her husband, Arthur, played by John Magaro. It's so crazy to see him be this grown-up man with a normal job and a normal life. He's so Korean. He still lives with his parents, which is really Korean. And he has all these really Korean views about everything. And I feel so not Korean when I'm with him, but also in some way more Korean. So weird. I mean, I have Korean friends, but he's not like Korean American. He's Korean Korean. Is he attractive? I think so. He's really masculine in this way that I think is so Korean. Are you attracted to him? I don't think so. I don't know. I mean, I don't think so. He was just this kid in my head for such a long time. And then he was just this image on my laptop. And now he is a physical person. It's really intense, but I don't think that that's attraction. I think I just missed him a lot. I think I miss soul. Did he miss you? I think he missed the 12-year-old crybaby he knew a long time ago. You were a crybaby? Yeah. Most of the time, he'd have to just stand there and watch me. Greta Lee, welcome to Fresh Air. It's so great to be here. Thank you for having me. What drew you to Nora and to this project? A lot of fans know you from your roles in comedies, and this isn't like those. What did you relate to the most? I remember reading the script. And I was completely astounded by the script. Uh, I wasn't at the time familiar with Celine's song, even though, you know, she was a playwright and we both have that theatrical background. I wasn't familiar with her work. I went in blind and I started reading her gorgeous words. And it became clear that I was reading something that was subverting genre. It was a love story and it was, you know, a love triangle. But... It was completely, for me, radicalizing the idea of what we can expect from a story like that. And as I continued to read, I was just imagining taking on something like this. And yeah, it was really terrifying to think about the possibility of even doing it. The language, I mean, the tremendous amount of Korean that would be required of me. I've never acted in another language, period. You had said that you figured you'd never do a role where you speak Korean. Yeah, that's not something that was on my vision board. I had never expected to do that. To be honest, I don't think that I I was entirely confident that I had the capacity to do that. Acting is is already hard, and to do it in a different language I was really challenged by the idea of whether or not I'd be able to pull it off and and do it in service of everything we wanted to accomplish with this movie. It required such a tremendous amount of restraint and stillness and silence and a supreme specificity um, that, you know, I I wanted to make sure that I'd, I'd be able to deliver on all of those things. 
I read that uh, Celine Song, the director and the writer of the movie, did some things to kind of help with the dynamics of you <laughs> and the other two two stars. For example, she told you and um, Tao Yu, who plays the childhood friend Hei Sung, that you couldn't touch each other to kind of create this tension or this mm-hmm. distance between the two of you. Can you describe um, some of her techniques, like what she wanted you to do? <laughs> um, because of what we were setting out to do with this movie and the specificity of these relationships, these two very unique relationships that I had to build with you know, the incredible Teo Yu and the extraordinary John Magaro that were very distinct from each other. And they had to be their own sort of private worlds, um, private from each other. So part of that involved separating the two of them. So I developed my own relationship, respectively, with each of these actors. And it wasn't until the actual scene in the movie when Arthur and Hesung meet that is the actual footage of them meeting for the first time. And that was also the case when we were trying to show the physicality of love. Uh, and I guess what I mean by that is the actual physiological response you have when you are reunited with someone that you love. What is chemistry? What is that tangibly? And that involved certain things like Teo and I not touching and not making any sort of physical contact until we actually touch, until that hug in Madison Square Garden. That was the first time we made any sort of physical contact. By making that forbidden, it heightened and pressurized touch. Now, you're more known for your comedic roles. How did you approach this film differently? This film is really quiet, and at times, so much is exchanged in these silent moments, these pauses and glances. I remember feeling stunned by how exposed I felt doing this in ways I think I'm only beginning to understand. There was no costume or, you know funky makeup or there was no behavioral things, nothing sort of, there was nothing to hide behind. I remember joking with Celine that it would be easier if I could actually just be nude (laughs) because I felt so uncomfortably exposed speaking on and showing things in this movie that I previously had never expected to be able to show. All the nuances of what it is to be a woman like Nora, or a woman like me, a child of immigrants, a person who is bicultural, who straddles multiple worlds while navigating being just a regular human living in America. Now, the film is certainly about love and about past loves and the love triangle and the struggle with that. But um, I also see it as the struggle Nora goes through you know, the fight between looking back and focusing on her life now. And that's a struggle of a lot of immigrants, you know, people who leave where they come from. It's not like she's mourning or yearning necessarily for just the old boyfriend. I felt like she was mourning or yearning for a life that that she could have had, you know, had she not moved away and had she not continued her quest to be like an artist. Um, It's that struggle, too, and not just about the past love. Yes. I think arguably, too, it's almost even bigger than uh, the experience of being an immigrant. It should ring true, hopefully, for anyone who's moved anywhere, Mm -hmm. anyone who's had to leave home and go to a different place for a certain dream that they have for themselves and how to reconcile this lost version of yourself Mm -hmm. that you can never get back ever. And that there may be certain people from home, so to speak, who will forever know you in a way that no one else will be able to know you. What was the response of people in your family seeing you (laughs) speak that much Korean on film? Honestly, my parents were shocked. (laughs) You know, (laughs) and it was funny to me because I remember the first time that I uh, 
I mean, I'd obviously told them what I was about to setting out to do. And and yet the first time they saw the trailer, my mom called me and said, which means, oh, my God, this is in Korean. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I was in total disbelief that she it just didn't. They hadn't fully processed what that means. But now I understand. How could they? They've Mm -hmm. never seen an American movie Mm -hmm. in Korean. You know, we were trying to redefine the entire, the the idea of what can, what constitutes an American film. An American film by A24, shot in New York City, on film, in a lot of Korean. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I will say that, you know, the interesting thing about language, I'll share that my first language was Tagalog, the language that they speak in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. And like to this day, I understand everything, but I have a hard time speaking it because I don't speak it that often. And now these days, I don't have anyone near me who speaks Tagalog, so I don't hear it that often. But if I ever hear it, like if a group of people's walking by, or I recently went to an Asian food store and some women there were speaking it, I, I, could, I can almost cry because it yes this place deep in mm-hmm. my brain like in the past that I can hardly uh, like access anymore. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. <laughs> it's that longing. It's like yeah. a diasporic longing or something that is like is so hard to explain but it feels physical. Yeah. I remember for months after wrapping the film I was in a state of <laughs> grief honestly because I knew that the reality of my life it does not warrant me speaking that much Korean. It just doesn't, you know. I'm a mother of two young children. They know some Korean, but I don't exist in a space and time that allows for me to just speak Korean. I, like, no one would understand me. <laughs> it wouldn't be functionally appropriate. But I think that's what's so, I think, incredible about the movie, that that's also part of this. How do I reconcile? How does Nora reconcile with the, with how tragic that is? That this is a huge part of her actual DNA as a human being. And yet there are certain considerations and certain um, compromises, exchanges that are made just to live. And that's just the reality of, of life mm-hmm. for, for everyone. I read that your mother was a musician and she was a pianist before she moved away from Seoul, but she wasn't able to perform in the U.S. Is Do, do I have that story right? And yes. did you know that growing up? Yes. My mother, um, she attended Ihua University. It's a women's, it's a prestigious women's university in Seoul, Korea. Um, and she was a piano major. She was a concert pianist. Um an incredible classically trained musician. And she immigrated to America with my father right before having us um, and put aside her musical aspirations. She is thoroughly an artist. I wouldn't say she's as cool as Nora's. She doesn't, <laughs> she certainly doesn't smoke cigarettes, but she is, um, she has always been an artist. Just in every way. Uh, she, she's a painter. She does minhwa. Um, this is a, a, a form of traditional Korean painting. She d- does uh, flower arranging. Uh, she, she, she is an artist, capital A. Um, but yes, she um, became a homemaker. Um, and <laughs> this is reminding me of something else she said after she saw the movie. Mm-hmm. And, ugh. I guess I'm getting kind of emotional remembering this, but she was in tears. Mm. And I was shocked because I don't think my parents have ever specifically acknowledged my work for better or for worse. Not even not in a cruel way. There, mm. It was just it's a, it was more along the lines of like, oh, you did that. Good job. What do you want for dinner? <laughs> but this the first time they saw the movie, my mom was. <laughs> oh gosh, I'm crying now. But she was sobbing and and I was deeply uncomfortable, if I'm honest, and not prepared to receive that kind of 
of a reaction from her. And uh, several days later, she called me and she was driving and she said, I'm still crying <laughs> about your movie. And I said, I'm so sorry, Mom. I, you know, I, what's going on for you? And she said, I am Nora. <laughs> she said, I, this movie is about me. And I, I was totally shocked by that sentiment. And it never even occurred to me that she could feel that way. And was the artistic part of it like what did she tell you more about it? Would it would also be consistent that she didn't? But yeah, but and she's um, like, did and she... that's enough now. <laughs> but did she tell you more about what it was about it? She did. She you know maintained the mystery about her, but <laughs> <laughs> she mentioned it was along the lines of all that is lost hmm. when you move. Yeah. Um. But also, all that is gained. It, it's like that line in the movie when um, the two mothers are talking. Mm-hmm. In order to gain something, you have to lose something, I think, is a line. Yeah. And my mother was expressing the embarrassment of riches she's received in her life, immigrating here. But the heartache of everything that was lost in order to do that. Um And yes, also the artistic uh, sacrifice that she made um, in order to become a mother to me and my brother and sister. Well, Greta Lee, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Greta Lee stars in the film Past Lives. She spoke with Fresh Air's Anne-Marie Baldonado. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shorrock, Sam Brugger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Anne-Marie Boldonado, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Our co-host is Tanya Mosley. I'm Terry Gross. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Stearns & Foster. Every Stearns & Foster mattress is handcrafted for irresistible comfort with indulgent memory foam and ultra-conforming IntelliCoils for your most comfortable sleep. Learn more at stearnsandfoster.com. This advertisement comes from our paid sponsor, Fundrise. High interest rates mean that real estate assets are available at a discount compared to previous valuations. The Fundrise flagship fund plans to expand its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. Add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio at fundrise.com NPR. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the fund before investing. Read the prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. Okay, close your eyes for a second. Now imagine you're on your dream vacation. No work calls to answer, no text messages to respond to, just your suitcase and an opportunity. The opportunity to just take yourself out of your routine and travel deeper. How to actually take that dream trip. That's on the Life Kit Podcast from NPR.